You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. On this episode, we're talking about children's books. We interview author Gabrielle Moss, who created Paperback Crush, which takes a look back at some of our favorite series from the 80s and 90s. And we talk to KCLS children's librarian Destiny Sutton about some of our childhood favorites and what's happening in the world of picture books now. Before we get started, we just wanted to make a note that we experienced some sound issues while recording this episode. There's a chirping sound that occurs throughout the segment. We're sorry about that. It's us, not you. So don't pull your car over to the side of the road, and we promise we'll fix it for next time. Paperback Crush, which is um, half historical analysis and half nostalgia trip about uh, the series teen books of the 80s and 90s, sort of the examining the period of time uh, after Judy Bloom but before Harry Potter. And how did you decide to go back and reread these? Um, the honest answer is that I was... Uh, just kind of a little bummed out uh, a few years ago and I thought, oh God, I'll just, you know what I will do? I'll treat myself to buying a giant box of Sweet Valley High books on eBay uh, because Sweet Valley High had been uh, my favorite as a, as a tween. And I thought, and I'll just, you know, I'll check out from reality for a little while, get lost in just this swirl of 80s nonsense and it'll put me in a better mood. And um I did start doing that, but after I, you know, read a few of these books, I thought, you know, this is actually really sociologically interesting. You know, I had been a huge consumer of teen fiction when I was uh, elementary and middle school age uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, and I had always kind of assumed those books were so frivolous and so light that they had not impacted me in any way. But as I started to revisit more and more of these books, I sort of saw, saw that there was more and more of an impact there and more and more of a, of a cultural history worth examining that had kind of been, you know, dismissed. I don't think I was the only person who had been remembering these books as, oh, it's just kind of, kind of a silly thing that didn't matter. And it, it seemed like they actually mattered a lot uh, when I went back to them. Yeah, you, you float this idea that these books, which include Sweet Valley High and Babysitter's Club and many, many others, uh, helped shape the idea for probably a whole generation that includes all of us that girls and women could have it all, a career, a romance, and family. Can you tell us more about wh how, where that idea shows up in the books? Uh, yeah, I think it shows up in um, a lot of your series books, uh, especially ones oriented around groups of girls or female friend groups uh, like you know, like Sweet Valley High, like Babysitter's Club. Uh, and, you know, it sort of showed up uh, parallel to when that idea was starting to go into mainstream women's culture in the 80s as well, when women were going to work. And there was kind of the idea of, you know, you're a super mom, you're doing it all, you're in the boardroom, you're also the only person taking care of your kids. Men are still doing nothing. But, um, you know, and that does... Um, show up a bit in the book, say in uh, Babysitter's Club, you know, where they're 12 years old, but they're running their own business, you know, they're working out personal issues and they're kind of managing a lot. Um, and one of the notable things I think about these books is that they don't imply that you have to make a lot of sacrifices. You know, you can 
have a boyfriend or girlfriend. You can run your business. You could have your friends. You don't have to sacrifice anything, you know, whereas maybe earlier novels, say romance novels might have implied to have a, to have a boyfriend, you have to give everything else up and focus on that. And in these books, there was a lot more of sort of an expansiveness of what the, the female experience could be. Even though I feel like I should say, like, there are a lot of problems with these books. <laughs> and these books kind of formed our ideas of, like, certain, uh, I don't know, stereotypes or, like, you're the something one of your friend group. Yeah. Um, did you identify most strongly with any one, let's say, like, Babysitter's Club member? That has been a funny thing. Um, growing up, I always wanted to be a Claudia, and I think there's a lot of people want to be Claudias, but we know we're not really Claudias because we're not cool enough. Um, I spent a long time being like, well, then what am I? Maybe I'm a Stacy or a Jesse. And um, only now, in my 37th year of life, can I finally admit I'm a Mallory. I've always been a Mallory. I just didn't want to deal with it, but I'm dealing with it now. The other trope that I love that shows up a lot, especially as you're talking about these series in the books, is the one who used to live in the city, which is like not a character trait at all. Uh, but it seemed like it was maybe one of the most common. Do you have any ideas about where that particular trope might come from? My guess is, and these are not not uh, researched at all, just kind of off the top of my head, is, um, you know, so much media in the 80s really was about kids in the suburbs, you know, I don't know, all your hit, your hit movies, like your ETs and your Goonies. And I feel like, you know, having someone be from the city was kind of a, a shorthand way to be like, they've had a they've had an experience that's mysterious to you. Like they, they're not living the same way as you. They've been on those mean streets. And I mean, I think, yeah, also at the time cities were certainly coded as, um, I don't know, more transgressive places than they are now. You know, Stacy and the babysitters club being from New York city. It was like, she's so edgy. She's edgy for a 12 year old. And I'm curious, like for better or worse, what some of the lessons are that you felt like you learned as a young reader about what it means to be a young lady. Well, I think, I think I learned some very good lessons. Um, you know, I think one of the things that comes across in a lot of these series books is the importance of female friendship. And, you know, we might sort of take that idea as a given now, but I feel like in the eighties, it wasn't necessarily, you know, I don't remember being a little kid and having anyone be like, you know, take good care of your friendships. These people might be with you for the rest of your life. Um, but I did learn that in books like Babysitter's Club, and I feel like it impacted me. And I would say a lot of our generation, you know, people who have these kind of found families of friends, um, I think that's more common among our generation than it was in previous generations. And I do feel like uh, these books played a role in that. On the negative side, uh, I do think the extremely homogenous experiences uh, going on in a lot of these books, you know, a lot of these books uh, have, you know, no little to no racial diversity, size diversity, class diversity. Um, you know, I think that is sort of a negative legacy to them. And I think had a negative impact probably on a lot of people who didn't, uh, fit into those, those boxes. You know, I'm 
so someone from who felt their family background was not necessarily being reflected in these books. And, you know, sometimes I'd feel a little weird about it. I'd be like, oh, everyone in, everyone in Stony Brook has parents that really seem to get along. Like, how do I fit into this? Is there a series that you would love to see kind of rebooted with a maybe more diverse cast of characters? Um, I mean, that is a great question. Uh, I think there is a lot of room for rebooting a lot of these. And I, if they're not already rebooting, uh, like doing a total reboot on Fear Street, I will eat my hat. That's money on the table. Somebody do it. Um, a series I discovered while researching this that I thought was right for a reboot is um, this absurd beauty pageant series called uh, All That Glitters that was very like over-the-top dynasty. And I was just like, somebody reboot it. You know, we're ready for it now. It wasn't a hit then. It'll be like Riverdale. Let's go all in on it. It's sacrilege to say, you know, reboot the Babysitter's Club, certainly. Uh, but I do think that you know, if they were to write new volumes to revive any of these, it would be good to to place them in a more diverse, diverse world, AKA the real world. You know, like when they did um, the Sweet Valley High uh, adulthood sequels a few years ago, I don't know if you all heard about them, uh, but it is still just everyone kind of just, just, you know, rich white people still just hanging around each other and I thought that was a missed opportunity. Let's say you could go back in time to your scholastic book fair of dreams with like, uh, you know, infinite allowance money to just scoop up everything you loved. What would you be putting in your basket? Oh my God. Um, I would be putting um, every Sweet Valley High and Sweet Valley Twins book I could find in my basket. Certainly every Babysitter's Club book I could find in my basket. Uh, every Mary Dowling Han book. Uh, I feel like I only got to talk about her a little bit in Paperback Crush, but she is my favorite. She is amazing. And I tried really hard to get an interview with her for this, and I, I couldn't track her down. So if, if anyone who knows Mary Dowling Han is listening to this, please put her in touch with me. Was she the author of uh, the one with Helen? Yeah, Wait Till Helen Comes. Oh, so spooky. <laughs> So I read it a few years ago and it's still so scary and so good. Could you talk a little bit about maybe like horror for kids? Something uh, unique about horror for kids in the era that I discuss in this book is that I feel like it, a lot of it revolved around um, kidnappings in a way it doesn't anymore. Um, you can really see if you look through sort of the hit thriller books for tweens from the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, there's just this, um, you know, there was a sort of panic in the country, an idea that children were being, you know, just kidnapped off the streets constantly, which turned out to not be that factually accurate. But it is all over these books, you know, The Face on the Milk Carton um, or a book called The Girl in the Box, which is the number one book that people have brought up to me while discussing this book and just in terms of yes. something that traumatized them like well into their 40s. Oh my God. I remember this book and I didn't know that was the name, but I still think about it sometimes. <laughs> like it is, I cannot use on this podcast the language that I would like to use to describe that book because it is dark. It's so nihilistic. There's no reason anything happens. It's just like the, the world has no order. Bad things happen to good people. Good night. I feel like if a book like that came out now, it would be more of a, of a thing, you know, maybe it would be like high YA literary fiction, but at the time it just kind of got, you know, lumped in with this, this week's, this week's batch of new books on the shelves at Walden books, which is, um, really wild. You know, some 
extreme stuff or very literary and well-written stuff would end up kind of just getting shuffled in the mix because it had the same cover as every kind of cover as everything else. Can we talk about the cover art first? It's so good. <laughs> I feel like from the Sweet Valley High, which is so iconic and pastel and candy colored to the like Fear Street series with its like creepy blood dripping fonts that like they're just such an iconic part of this moment in teen lit. Yeah. And I learned while researching this that actually most of the most of the series styles that jump into your mind uh, when you're thinking of these books, uh, most of them were all handled by a single artist. Uh, you know, all of the Babysitter's Club covers were drawn by, uh, almost all of them were drawn by a single artist. Almost every Sweet Valley High was done by a different artist. Uh, there was a primary artist that they worked with on the R.L. Stein books, whose name is slipping my mind. But like, you know, these things seemed like such a, such a specific thing because they were, uh, it was, they were auteurs of, uh, of children's cover illustration. One of my favorite parts of your book discusses sort of the um, clothing that was brought to set for Claudia Kishi, a style yeah. icon for an entire generation, that there would be some notes about maybe, you know, what she would wear, but it was often like model zone, mishmash. <laughs> Yeah, for something that's, I think, impacted so many women in our generation about what we thought was a cool look, it was just almost random. I was, it was That was honestly the most disheartening th- thing I learned researching this, that I had thought it was so intentional that Claudia Kishu was a fashion icon, and really people were just kind of like pointing at a pile of clothes and being like, she wears that. <laughs> So one of the fun little Easter eggs for me in this book is how many well-known authors got their start writing these series titles. Uh, like yeah. Reese Bowen, who writes historical mysteries now and is really well-known and a bestseller, used to write for Wildfire, which is one of the romance series. Uh, and I wonder how many of her current readers read those 80s romances and don't even know that it's the same author. What was your oh favorite God. little Easter so egg? Sure. Right? You know, they didn't have title. They didn't have their names associated on them. It was just sort of like the wildfire books. But uh, what was your favorite discovery? Oh, Uh, my favorite discovery was uh, that Tom Parada of uh, of election and um, little children fame. You know, this highbrow literary author now uh, had gotten started writing some Fear Street books. Amazing. I did not know that. That's so great. Are there any other authors that you wish you could have talked to for the book? Oh, God. I mean, yeah, I wish I could have talked to the heavies. I wish I could have talked to uh, Anna Martin. Uh, I wish I could have talked to Francine Pascal. Um, I was super excited that I got to talk to Christopher Pike, which I didn't think was going to happen until the last second. And he was uh, a total, total delight to work with and everything you'd hope the architect of your your childhood nightmares would be just just a very a very nice cool non-nightmarish guy i met rl stein uh last year and had the same experience he was just so like lovely and generous and sort of quiet and retiring and i was like man you gave me a lot of nightmares as a child (laughs) a lot of cheerleaders like being pushed (laughs) off of you know decks or in super hot showers yeah stalkers so many stalkers how was he thinking of all the stalkers this stuff happened and then harry potter came and we forgot all this stuff happened but could harry potter have come without the groundwork that these books laid Probably not. We think of something like Harry Potter as like this totally discreet phenomenon that came out of nowhere, but really like, you know, with your blockbuster series, like Sweet Valley High being the first YA YA series to get on the New York Times bestseller list, like that did lay the groundwork for 
send this, you know, excellently written YA series to just, you know, explode into space. Well, and all those series made a whole generation of kids used to devouring books and reading these like long series. So when it was like, oh, Harry Potter's going to be seven books. It's like, okay, fine. Sure. We're here for that. 500 pages. No big deal. No problem. We've been reading three babysitters clubs a week for, you know, since second grade. I think it totally primed us and also, you know, got us ready for that mishmash of, you know, the sort of teen emotional YA and the the high fantasy stuff. Right. I mean, I think one of the draws of Harry Potter is the friendships Mm -hmm. and the relationships between the characters. Like, that's where I first learned about, like, shipping and fan mm-hmm. fiction. You know, like, we cared about those relationships. And I think it's sort of the same thing. Like, that felt real. Just, like, the friendships in the Babysitter's Club or these romances or whatever. Like, kids want to read about relationships as much as adults do. The book that really, I like, in my personal journey, I think, switched on the, the light bulb for me in terms of being a reader was um, a Sweet Valley High book. It was... Uh, the New Jessica, which is a book where one of the horrible uh, Sweet Valley High twins uh, decides to, like, dye her hair black and pretend that she's, like, French or something. Um, and for, for some reason, at age seven, this, you know, it was, like, opening, like, the door to Narnia, like, just this teenage world of forbidden amazing things that I couldn't get enough of. And then you know, I read a bunch more in like a month and then I was like, oh, I love reading now because I had been kind of, I had had some delays with my ability to read. I transferred from Montessori school to public school and I was like, I only know about playing with sand when I feel like it. And now we're supposed to do math. Um, so, uh, really like the, the more lowbrow, uh, teen books of that moment really were the thing that put me on the path to being like, oh no, actually I can read and I love reading. And that makeover trope is so strong throughout so much young adult fiction, this very seductive idea that like with the right outfit or a new hairstyle, you too could be like the most popular one. I feel like I was waiting for someone to give me a makeover and make me the most popular girl in school until I was like 30. (laughs) Maybe this is the year. (laughs) After summer break, you're going to come back and everyone will love you. People won't even recognize you. You like, do you like my highlights? I'm cool now, aren't I? <laughs> I was, we always ask people, what are you reading now? Whether it's, you know, series Y fiction from the 80s or something new. A true sign of my actual age, uh, I'm reading uh, Brene Brown's Daring Greatly, which is a real, I feel like, peak women in their mid-30s book right now. I mean, if you want to start getting into... 80s, 90s YA, I do feel like a really a really well-written thriller like Wait Till Helen Comes might be a thing to get you hooked. Um, if you are looking to just kick back and maybe kill a few brain cells, I do think uh, Sweet Valley High, just pick, pick whichever one has the most absurd cover to you and just pop it open and see how you feel. I feel like if it's good enough for Roxanne Gay, it's good enough for us all. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank you so much for having me. Destiny. I am the children's librarian at the White Center Library and also at the Greenbridge Library.
So I thought we could start, since we're talking about children's books today, by talking about books that we loved as kids. I made a list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hit us. Um, when I was a kid, I had every single Babysitter's Club book, like over a hundred, like they took up almost a whole wall. <laughs> all the super specials, all the little sisters when they were detectives, <laughs> all of them. And I would seriously consider if I was Claudia or Marianne or Dawn or Christy or Stacy. You had to tell us, like... Who do, you, who do you think you most identified with and who do you want to be? I mean, it's still a thing I struggle with today. Because <laughs> <laughs> they all had... This one made them so great. It was like proto-sex in the city. It was like you saw yourself in all of them in ways. And right. You wanted to be different types of girl on different days. But I super wanted to be Claudia, who's like clearly the coolest. Yes, 100%. Hiding candy in her room and like dressing so awesome. Um, but honestly, I think I'm so bossy. I'm mostly a Christie, <laughs> like day in, day out. But when you become a librarian, you have to see like the Marianne in yourself because it's like a very Marianne profession. I, too, believe that deep down I am a Marianne. Same. I love rules. I know what's expected of me, and I know how to yeah. how to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not enough of a leader to really be a Christie. I like that you brought up the super specials. Yeah. Because when I was getting ready for this episode, I was like, oh, my God, the super specials. I love them so much. Yeah. So for listeners who don't remember, tell us what a super special is. It was super long. It was probably three times longer yeah. than a normal book. And I think they usually took place in the summer or in a special location. Like they go on a cruise or they're at summer camp. And the adventure is just... I don't know. I think the best word is epic. epic. <laughs> and, oh, my God, I would read the super specials over and over again because, really, the regular books um, didn't satisfy me as much as the super specials because I do love big books. Like, I love long, you know, getting lost in long stories. And I remember that the super specials change the chapters change uh, which character they're following, yes. and they had the characters' names written in like different cursive. Their handwriting, yeah, their handwriting, <laughs> the top of the of each chapter, which like made a very big impression on me oh, as yeah. a young reader. I was like, oh my god, how you dot your eye is like, who are you? Yes, <laughs> yeah, open circle or heart. dot heart. <laughs> big decisions to be made. I may not remember all of the details, but I remember loving the super special where they go to New York. Yes, me too. Like with Jesse, like in the ballet, like someone visits the cloisters. I think what was so seductive and alluring about them is like all this autonomy that children had, like running around exploring that, um, love you, mom and dad, but both my parents are teachers Mm -hmm. and my summers were all spent as a family. (laughs) It was never like boredom (laughs) or anything or like that sense of like, ah, freedom at Mm -hmm. last. Yes. So many children's books, uh, are based on unsupervised kids because that's when you have the most fun. Like, that's why so many are orphans or they have this kind of independence or they run away from home. Yeah, boarding school because if you have, like, caring, attentive, maybe overprotective parents, like, what kind of adventures 
could really pursue. <laughs> like, nothing exciting. Very modest one. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me laugh that you said it was, like, a proto-sexism city because I I also love the New York one so much, and I do. I feel like a whole generation of, like, young women were primed to love sex in the city. Because it really was, like, oh, four friends. And like, then girls. Yes. Yeah. Just a long tradition of, like groups of female friends yeah. it's very distinct being characters. the something one yeah, yeah. Um, yeah exactly. I actually got into a fight with one of my ex-boyfriends about the American Girl series mm-hmm. about whether I was more of a Samantha or a Molly <laughs> different Samantha <laughs> yeah do you even know me <laughs> I'm impressed that your ex-boyfriend knew of American Girls. Right. I yeah, was going to say that takes a lot great. of context for yeah. him. He's a very special person. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Because, I mean, the other thing about when I was growing up is there were definitely, like, but there were books boys did not read. Like, they would have been um, teased mercilessly if they were caught reading those books. But imagine how much a boy who read them would, like, get. Yeah. <laughs> the social capital that would come yeah. from being well-versed oh in Babysitter's gosh. Club. Yeah. Yes. Have a sticker collection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Azure Lisa Frank game. Yes. Oh my god, so good. Yeah. so many like file folders, oh, yeah. which I really needed as a second grader. Absolutely, Just covered Keep in organized. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Besides the Lisa Frank Trapper Keepers, there's also a tradition many of our listeners probably encountered: the Scholastic Book Fair. Yes, oh which still continues today. Mm-hmm. I visit um, book fairs at some of my schools to do readers' advisory. Someone gave me the idea to just invite myself and just be there helping kids find, you know, connect with books because often the librarian is super bit. Bu- the school librarian is super busy, and the parents who are there don't necessarily know because they're all fairly new books. Yeah. So I really, I was just last year at a classic book fair and hit with like so much nostalgia because it's very similar, you know, like all the things uh-huh. on top of the books and like it's a real like um, struggle to even get the kids to like look at the books because there's so many <laughs> cool things, the posters, the erasers. Oh my God. They sell out of certain books like so fast, like the Jeff Kinney and the Captain underpants mm-hmm. like those go so fast the Raina telgemeier has gone like day one yeah. <laughs> and then the kids who had to go later in the week are like what's left for me <laughs> but there's a lot of good stuff can you tell us so you are part of your job is staying up on new children's literature so so what are some of your new favorites yeah um there's a new picture book that i just keep thinking about all the time it is called the empty house and the full house have you uh-uh. seen this it is very weird but the fact that it stayed on my mind so much has to me says there's something special about it It's by L.K. James. It's called The Full House and the Empty House. So it is a picture book that does not have a clear plot. It's just like a house that's full of furniture and like very nice. It also has arms and legs (laughs) and, you know, it's like anthropomorphic house. And then there's a house that has almost nothing inside of it, again, with like arms and legs and and they're friends and they they dance (laughs) together (laughs) and and they're just happy. And the full one's happy being full, and the empty one's happy being empty. And that's kind of how the book ends. And I read it to my daughter, and she was like, that's it. <laughs> and I realized, you know, like,
like it it's like a meditation almost more than a traditional story but I feel like I want to read it again and again because I feel like it offers so many chances to ask questions and think about what it means to be full what it means to be empty what it means to dance with or be friends or have a relationship with someone who is so different from you and um I don't know I just love it it's probably my favorite book I've read this year and it's like probably under 100 words <laughs> and that's kind of my thing <laughs> like I really like deep picture books I agree with you I have a little person in my house and so I read a lot of picture books and so I'm very I get excited when there's something that's like unusual or just not yeah. I mean god bless Lucy Cousins I have read a yes. lot of Maisie books yeah. and it's nice to encounter something that's like a little uh kind of off kilter oh yeah there's I, one from our best books list last year that I think you really like that I just I really date my friend yes yes <laughs> I love that and I go in bookstores and sometimes like face it out prominently because <laughs> <laughs> it is it just ends like a little bit weird yeah like a little yeah. dark a little off yeah uh, it's unexpected Yes. And I I think as someone who reads like hundreds of kids books every year, like my personal taste is just going to trend towards novelty. And repetition is so important to developing minds. But as the like adult around children who want to read the same book over and over and over again, I'm sure it can be a little exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a a list um, that I keep in Biblio Commons of like, um, like children's books for like that I would recommend to adults and that the thing I look for is like the book that can bear multiple readings or you know mm-hmm. like holds up to like whether it's the art or the language like picture books now are often so beautiful and you know so, so much craft is put into them they're not at all like well there were good books when we were kids but really you can't compare like the books being published in the last like 10 years to what was published in like the 80s and 90s it's like a different world there's just so many of them too oh yeah like to choose from you know I think when we were kids it was like the sticky cheese man and like everybody loves the sticky cheese man rainbow fish right oh my god I just reread rainbow fish and found it really disturbing yes (laughs) it's in translation did you know that it was it's German or something. Okay, that checks out. But, uh, yeah, then it's like, oh, Rainbow Fish has to share his specialness with everyone else. But you think it's like his literal body. (laughs) Like, does it hurt to take your shiny scales off? It's like the giving tree. It is is like the giving tree. So horrifying. Yeah, and like love you forever, which is very upsetting (laughs) about the mom who like breaks into her adult son's house and like holds him in her arms. Yes. (laughs) Two books my child loves, by the way. (laughs) If we're going to talk about upsetting and disturbing, I feel like we can't not mention... um, did, do you happen to read the collection Scary Stories to Tell in the oh, Dark? Oh, yeah, Alvin Schwartz. Ab- kids still read that. Which has just the most terrifying pencil drawings. Yeah. On them. They look sort of like Czechoslovakian film posters. Yes. Um, so, like, already starting off strong. But then the stories, oh, I yeah. recently checked out a bunch of them at, like, to take to a Halloween party mm-hmm. to, like, sit around and share stories over the campfire and was just shocked that, like, these were given to very small children, yes. including me, who grew up to be like a great big horror fan, but like <laughs> very 
very disturbing. Yeah. And you sort of see this connective thread between um, the girl with the like green ribbon around her neck mm-hmm. to Carmen Maria Machado. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I will never forget the one where uh, someone has a Spider. lump on their face. Yeah, and it turns out to be like a sack of baby spiders. Yeah. Oh, oh. I feel like they traumatized an entire generation. <laughs> they re-released oh. them with, with different, different illustrations yep. because they were frequently banned and challenged. Yeah. Uh, but what is the point of them without those illustrations? I know, which right? are like, and I think I read somewhere that they're doing a TV series of them based on the illustrations. I think Guillermo del Toro yes, is directing perfect. a movie okay. version. I saw a trailer recently and I'm tentatively, hesitantly excited. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, was also a huge Goosebumps fan, oh, eventually yeah. a Fear Street reader. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Uh, big into Mary Downing Hahn. Yes. Like, Wait till Helen comes. Yes. And those are still popular, still in print, still get questions about them. And I'm like, you know, read them with a flashlight at night. You won't sleep all night. It'll be worth it. <laughs> I feel like a lot of times when I go back and reread things that I read, as a child and enjoy it and reread them as an adult, I'm like, they give this to children? Yes. How can they handle yes. it? I recently reread Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. Yes. It is scary. So scary. Yes. So if listeners haven't read it, it's set in the South in the civil rights era and the, it's about a black family. The and Logans. Yeah, the Logans. And it's wonderful and it's got all of this great, you know, family relationships and sibling stuff, but there is a constant threat of violence. Yeah on these children and it is terrifying. Yeah. I couldn't believe how uh, anxious I felt reading it as a grown up. Yeah. And I, I think kids in some ways have like a higher, it doesn't feel as real to them. Maybe. Yeah. The difference between reading a book that's scary and watching a movie that's scary is huge. Cause the scary movie is like putting these horrible images in your mind. Yeah. And when you're reading a book and something feels uncomfortable or scary, I think a lot of kids and maybe adults too, just find themselves reading a little bit faster <laughs> <laughs> or just skipping ahead and yep. making sure who's alive at the end yeah. and and just like only picturing it like to the to the extent that they can process it. And so, yeah, I mean, that's why when you go back and read it as an adult, it's more horrific because you have a better understanding of the world and you can picture how what's at stake. Yeah. But for kids, it's like, I'm just going to see here. Okay, yeah, still alive on the next page. Yeah. <laughs> so you can have like a calm yeah. feeling to get through it. There's an incredible post on the New York Public Library's blog of people being like, help me find this book yeah. that's full of questions. Like, it's about a girl named Zoe and it's there's yeah. like a haunted house element and then both librarians and other readers chiming in. That's so. one of my favorite parts of my job when someone comes in and is like, I really want to find this book and I can't remember very much about it and I'm like, you came to the right person. <laughs> we will find it. <laughs> we will scour the internet, the every the yeah. knowledge of all of like the hundred librarians yeah. at KCLS. Yeah. If you're listening and you have an elusive book like this, like please give us this mystery to solve. I love Nothing it. Nothing would make us happy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it feels so good. <laughs> it does. And when you get it, and they're like, yes! The thing I love the most is when I actually know it off the top of my head, which doesn't happen very often, but has happened before, but when the title feels like very unrelated or has a ton of words, like someone comes in and is like, oh, it's a book about kids who, like, I don't know, they run away from home, they, like, live in a museum, and you're like, the mix-up files of Mrs. Basley Frank. <laughs> Great. And they're like, no way. <laughs> 
That oh, is yeah. what I loved as a kid also. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. so great. <laughs> Every time I go into museum bathrooms still, I'm like, mm-hmm. I can just stand on the toilet at closing and they won't know I'm here. Yeah, you can bathe in the fountain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, the security is much better now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's going to happen? Oh, disappointing. What museum would you want to stay the night in? Oh, what a good question. I think the Natural History Museum in New York, which has the um, dinosaurs and, like, the the big, um, Squid you know. whale. Yeah. Our, our theme for the summer coming up is going to be outer space, and I keep thinking about the Buckminster Fuller, like, um, like the dome that's, like, scales of the universe and... Uh, just how when I first went to that museum, I felt like it it really did what museums are supposed to do. It like made me understand something that I really couldn't understand in any other way. Mm-hmm. I keep like racking my brain on how to like bring that kind of experience to kids who can't go to that museum yeah. of like scales of the universe, like how big an atom is compared to like the sun or whatever. It's, yeah. Did either of you participate in accelerated reader programs? I'm too old. Yeah, me too. Or Book It? Book It. I know Book It Repertory Theater that's new, that's in Seattle. So maybe it was just this brief period of time. I'm pretty sure it started during the Reagan administration. It was a very strange collaboration with Pizza Hut. Oh, we had Pizza Hut (laughs) coupons. That's what the Book It program is. You would like read all these books and document your hours. And I feel like a whole generation of readers was encouraged by personal band pizzas. But that was part of summer reading here. Yeah. I I wonder if that's partially like an East Coast, West Coast thing because I don't think it was we definitely got the coupons but it was definitely, definitely summer reading yeah yeah I but saw yes, very motivated by it because my parents were not going to get me a personal pan pizza otherwise no but if I earned it yeah I think when they went away it was like there was an uproar yeah. of like <laughs> what happened to the pizza <laughs> like we had tacos one year and everyone was like wait no we want pizza <laughs> A whole little pizza. Yeah, just a tiny. It's more substantial than, like, one taco. Yeah. Really. What's funny is, like, now Book It shirts are at, like, Urban Outfitters. Oh, my gosh. I haven't noticed. Yeah. Reading Rainbow, I've seen at Urban Outfitters. Like, Reading Rainbow, for sure, lives on in people's hearts. Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.